You're listening to a sermon in our series, Fully Alive, as we go through the book of Colossians. Visit LinworthRoadChurch.com for more. Well, again, good morning. It's, it's really good to see you all this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share with you this morning. It's been uh, quite a few months since I've been up here, so uh, I'm raring to go. I, uh, I may yell a little bit. I may cry. I don't know, but uh, I'm just excited. I hope that you are as well. Uh, and as Chris said, we are going to continue on in our new series in the book of Colossians that, uh, that we have called Fully Alive. Now, in case you weren't here last week, let me try to uh, set up the context of the book and, and, and why the Apostle Paul even wrote this letter. And, and basically what you had going on was uh, a guy named Epaphras had started a new church in the Roman city of Colossae. And, uh, you know, the church was going on and things were, were going okay. But at, at some point, some false teaching crept into the church. And so Epaphras reaches out to his friend Paul to, to try to get some help, to get some advice. And so uh, Paul, in response, uh, while sitting in prison, writes this letter to uh, the Christians in the church in Colossae. And so uh, that's sort of the, the context. He's, he's seeking to refute and to deal with this false teaching. Now, scholars disagree exactly uh, as to what the false teaching was. And, and, you know, that's sort of the tricky thing about our New Testament letters. Um, we don't always know what questions were asked or, or what problems are being addressed. Uh, in many ways, it's like being in a room with someone on the telephone. And, you know, you can pick up bits and parts of the conversation and, and you generally know what they are talking about. But there are still things that you might miss along the way. Um, but even with that said, um, we know because of how Paul responded that, that the false teaching basically revolved around them questioning the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he accomplished for them. You see, there seems to be some indication that, that they were hung up on some mysticism, uh, perhaps even some Jewish mysticism, and, and one of the ways that that played itself out was uh, these Colossian believers were, were seeking some secret knowledge or, or some secret insights. Uh, it was as if they believed that there were these uh, extra experiences that, that you needed or that you could have and, and that it was really only for a few people. And so Paul, all throughout this letter, is trying to debunk that way of thinking. And, and that's partly why in, in, in one of the verses we'll read today, uh, verse 23 in Colossians 1, uh, Paul says this. He says that this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, if we sit back and think about that statement, we realize that Paul isn't literally saying that every single human being in creation has heard the gospel message, but rather He's trying to communicate that this message, this wonderful news, it is not some obscure or secret mystery that's only reserved for a few, but rather it is a message that's being proclaimed to all people everywhere under heaven. And so basically, if we take all that and we boil the false teaching down, it's essentially this, that they asserted a theology that said that Christ alone was not enough. In other words, they were saying it's Jesus plus some other things, Jesus plus some experiences. And really, when you think about it, that is at the heart of all false teaching. It always is Jesus plus other things. And so with that in mind, uh, let's read today's passage. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to pray and invite the Lord to guide our time. And so uh, let's stand here as I read Colossians 1, uh, 
starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would come this morning, that you would guide our times, that you would open your word to us and give us uh, some clarity and some understanding of, of who Jesus is and, and, and what he has done for us. And, and so, God, would you be with us and would you guide us in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so obviously that was a long text. I was even like getting winded reading it all. And, and I just realized, man, Paul is maybe one of the worst writers ever with all those commas and sentences that are like, you know, 10 verses long. But uh, so even with all that said, we're not going to be able to walk through every single uh, passage or every single verse in this passage. But uh, the, the outline that's going to guide our time this morning is this, that knowing the real Jesus will bring you clarity. It'll bring you courage. And it'll give you confidence. So again, knowing the real Jesus will bring you clarity, courage, and confidence. And so starting with clarity. Now the thing you need to understand about the book of Colossians is this, that it is essentially a worldview book. And what I mean by that is Paul is laying out some basic foundational beliefs about Christ, about creation, about humanity, about about who we are and why we are here. And he's doing that over and against the false teaching that was seeking to introduce an alternative worldview. And that's why you get a verse like Colossians 2.8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
And so just keep that in mind as we go through this passage today, and and particularly as we look at this idea of how knowing the real Jesus brings us clarity. Now, the other thing to uh, keep in mind here is that uh, most scholars believe that verses 15 through 20 uh, were some sort of early church hymn or or perhaps a poem. And and some would say that that was a a well-known hymn or poem, and and so Paul was referring back to to this previously written document. Uh, Others think that Paul originally wrote this here in Colossians. Uh, But either way, I think it's very interesting that Paul is using art that he's using either a song or, or a poem to, to unpack some really profound theology about Christ. And, and so just keep that in mind as we go through this. But uh, I want to draw your attention back down to verse 15 as we think about this idea of, of Jesus bringing us clarity. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so right off the bat, we learn that Jesus is the image of God. Now, notice that it doesn't say that he is a image of God, but it says he is the image of God. And there's really no getting around what Paul is saying here. He is very clearly stating, and as we go through this passage, you'll really begin to see it, but he's very explicitly claiming that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is, in fact, God. And it's interesting that he says he is the image of the invisible God. And so really what Paul is telling us is that that in Christ, in the person and work of Jesus, we get a vivid picture of who God is, of what God is like. In other words, in Christ, these vague notions about an unseen God are made distinct and clear. In fact, later on in chapter 2, in verse 9, Paul writes this. He says, for in him, speaking of Christ... In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so what we see is that by knowing the real Jesus, by looking at his words, his actions, we get to know who God is and what God is like. Now we have to deal with uh, that little uh, word there, firstborn, where it says firstborn of all creation. Now that has been, uh, that word has been the source of a lot of unnecessary problems. And that's mainly due to our own ignorance and and our own reading into the text. Uh, That's why you'll have Jehovah's Witness look at this and say, look, see, it says right there very clearly that that Christ was a created being. In other words, they're claiming that this text shows that that Jesus was not pre-existent in his nature. Well, the problem with that is, is, number one, the word firstborn has multiple meanings. For example, it could mean firstborn in a numerical or physical sense, like Uh, For me, Hudson is my firstborn son. But the Bible also uses that word firstborn uh, many times to refer to position or to refer to preeminence. Uh, One example is Psalm 89, 27. It's It's a messianic psalm. And it says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So in other words, Paul isn't saying that Jesus was the first created thing in creation, but rather he is preeminent over creation. Just like how the psalmist isn't saying that the Messiah will be the, the firstborn of the, the, the firstborn king, but rather he will be the preeminent king of all the earth. And so again, the word firstborn, it's speaking of position and preeminence, not birth order. Now, the other reason that we know that this word firstborn isn't referring to Christ being created is because if we continue to look at this passage, we see in the very next verse, we're told this. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so what, does, what, what all does that tell us that Christ created? Or, or in other words, how many things that we can see and how many things that we can't see were created by Christ? Well, it says, what does it say? It says, all things. Now, that statement doesn't make any sense if Christ himself was created. You, you can't have someone be the creator of all things and be created themselves. That just doesn't work. And in fact, look at the next verse, verse 17. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so not only does Paul say he created all things, but just in case you're confused about Christ's preexistence, he states it very clearly that Christ is before everything. And so this is huge for us to understand and to believe because uh, this is telling us that Jesus is God incarnate. And therefore, if you and I, if we want clarity on who God is, if we want to know what God is like, then we need to look no farther than to look at the life and the character of Jesus. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, I, just, I just wonder if, if God is loving. Well, look at the life of Jesus. Go through the Gospels. Was Jesus ever loving to people? Did he display love? Well, of course. Or maybe you're wondering, I wonder if God is merciful. Will he, will he treat me with mercy one day? Well, again, look at the Gospels. Did Jesus display mercy? And, and as you do, you'll see over and over again that he did. And so you and I, we can have uh, clarity and confidence to know that Jesus and that God is merciful. And so again, we get clarity on who God is by looking to Jesus. But not only that, when we know the real Jesus, we get clarity on who we are. You see, we sort of skimmed over this uh, little statement already, but, but at the end of verse 16, we read this. All things were created through him and for him. And so what does that mean for you and for me? Well, it means that we were created by Jesus and we were created for Jesus. And man, that right there, that addresses kind of the biggest question in our worldview, in our philosophy, and that is this. Why are we here? Well, you and I, we are here because we were created by Jesus. We were created for him. And, and that is such a powerful truth because it explains so much of who we are and why we feel the way that we do and, and why all this brokenness in our world bothers us so much. You see, if we had truly evolved from the animal kingdom and, and we're really here through survival of the fittest or, or through natural selection... I can guarantee you that we would not feel the way that we do or care about the things that we care about. I mean, my, my family and I, we went to the zoo yesterday and we're looking around at these animals. And, and I don't think that that lion woke up uh, yesterday and thought to himself, not that this happened at the zoo, but go with it. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder if I should eat that gazelle today. I mean, on the one hand, uh, I'm, I'm pretty hungry and, you know, gazelles taste amazing. But, you know, on the other hand, if I eat this gazelle, I sure am going to ruin that guy's day. Uh, I'm certainly going to, you know, orphan some kids. And, and so I don't know. I'm just so torn. What should I do? Well, maybe you're thinking, well, that's a really dumb analogy because we know that lions don't think and feel. And you would be right. But the point I'm trying to make is this. There are things that you and I do, there are things that we care about that do not make sense if we evolved through the process of natural selection or through survival of the fittest. 
I mean, if that was true, why would we care about things like social justice or racial reconciliation or, or even women's rights? I mean, we saw in the last century with Nazi Germany where this kind of naturalistic way of thinking takes us and what its natural conclusions are. And yet I think there are very few people who want to go back down that road again. And yet if it's true, we're here by accident. If we were here because of natural selection, then we have to honestly think through the question, well, why not? I mean, what was wrong with with what happened in Nazi Germany? And so if that's true, if we do, in fact, think that there was something wrong with that, then we have to wrestle with, why are we here? And and, and why do we care about the things that we care about? And why do we feel the things that we feel? And the answer to all of that is because you were created by Jesus and you were created for Jesus. Uh, You know, I remember the the moment that this kind of truth really sunk in and and hit me. and, and, And I was a new believer and and uh, I wanted to spend some time with the Lord, and so uh, I took my Bible, and I took this little book that I'd heard was really good, and, and so I uh, drove out to the Park of Roses, and uh, I found a nice, quiet park bench, and, and I sat down, and I began to uh, read my Bible, and then later on, I, I picked up this little book. And so I'm just going along, reading uh, this book, and I come across the following sentence. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And when I read that sentence in St. Augustine's Confessions, I about fell off the picnic table. You see, because it, I, I know now that that's such a famous quote, but back then I had, I had never heard of it. And, and so I was just going along in this book that, that, quite frankly, was hard to read because it was written a really long time ago and, and the language was pretty uh, cumbersome. And, and yet that sentence jumped off the page at me and it, and it, it made so much sense of, of my life. It made so much sense of my feelings. It even made sense of my recent conversion to Christ because uh, I was filled with so much joy and I had all these uh, feelings of I, I finally made it home. And it was like Augustine was able to put in one sentence everything that I was feeling but couldn't express. And again, it just brought so much clarity to, to who I was and, and why I felt the way that I felt. And, and it even explained why all those years of living for the world were so unsatisfying. You see, Jesus, when he created us, he put inside of each of us these core longings, these desires that we can't help but but long for. There's such things like a, a desire to have fellowship with God, a desire to have a secure and safe environment, a desire to have a sense of self-worth, a, a desire to be unique and special. A desire to be important, a desire to be loved and to love, a desire to enjoy and to be enjoyed, and a desire to find fulfillment and meaning in life. See, I think sometimes in the church we have wrongly communicated that that some of those desires are wrong. But the truth is those desires are not wrong. In fact, they are God-given. Where we get in trouble is when we try to fulfill those desires apart from a relationship with God. When we try to fulfill those apart from the creator who put those longings in us and who is the only one who can truly satisfy or fulfill them. 
And so if you want to stand up here and claim that, that you don't actually have any of those longings or, or any of those desires, or, or if you want to stand up here and claim, well, I, I acknowledge I have those, but, but you know, they, they just help us in this natural selection process, you know, and by me wanting to be loved, it helps me then uh, be motivated to procreate and pass on. And, and, you know, if you want to say that, I guess go ahead. But for me, I can't deny that those longings exist in me. And not only that, I can testify to the truth that they can't be fulfilled in anyone or in anything other than Jesus. Because I've gone down that road. I've, I've tried that path, and I'm sure many of you have as well. And that's why some of you have walked in here this morning, and you're weary. You're, you're worn out because you've been trying so hard to have those longings met in other people and in other things. But the good news this morning is this, that you were made by Jesus and you were made for Jesus. And therefore, you only have to look to him. You only have to look to him alone to be satisfied. And so that's the first point. When we know the real Jesus, we get clarity on who God is, but we also get clarity on ourselves and why we are the way that we are. Uh, Let's move on to number two. And that's this. When we know the real Jesus, we get courage. And specifically in this passage, we see that we get courage to face life and we get courage to face death. Now, before we move on, let me give you a definition here for the word courage. Courage is the ability to face danger, difficulty, uncertainty, or pain without being overcome by fear or being deflected from a chosen course of action. And so when it comes to life, I think we can all admit that there are all kinds of of things like danger and difficulty and uncertainty and pain that that come into our lives. I mean, did anybody walk in here today with some danger, with some difficulty, with maybe some pain? I know that I have. And and, and if not, I can guarantee you if you just wait long long enough that those things are just around the corner for you. Because that's just what happens when you live in a broken and jacked up world. But what I want you to hear this morning is this, that that when you know the real Jesus, you have the ability to face those things without being overcome by fear. And you can for sure be certain that he is not going to let you be deflected from his chosen course for you. And look, look back down at verse 16. It says this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now you need to understand there when it says thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities, that it's referring to the spiritual realm. Uh, Some scholars think that that is a, a, a rank of kind of the spiritual realm. And so because of that, you and I, we need to recognize that there are all kinds of things going on in the spiritual realm that affect us, that bring danger, that bring difficulty, that bring pain into our lives. I guess another way to say it is that there are forces of evil that we cannot see that bring all kinds of suffering into our lives, that if it weren't for Christ, would crush us. And if you, if you doubt that, if, if you don't believe that, all you have to do is look at the life of Job. All of his suffering was the result of, of uh, Satan in the demonic uh, realm bringing suffering into his life. And so maybe this morning some of you are feeling the weight of that even now. 
But again, the reason that we can have courage, the reason that, that we can be brave in the face of danger and difficulty is because this passage tells us that all things, including the spiritual realm, things that we cannot see, including uh, angels and demons, that these things were created for Jesus and they were created by Jesus. Now, let me stop there. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Uh, Jesus didn't make Satan and demons evil. Rather, they, after being uh, created at some point, chose to rebel against God and therefore became evil. But even with that said, notice what this verse tells us. It says they were still created through him and for him. And so the reason that that should bring you courage is because Jesus is greater than them. His power and his authority is over them. And ultimately, they, even in their destruction, are still being used by God. You know, last week, uh, me and a few others from church here were, were up at Ashland Theological Seminary getting uh, some training in, in uh, this type of prayer called formational prayer. And, and because of the nature of that, that type of prayer, uh, we talked a lot about the spiritual realm and about spiritual warfare. And as we were going through that, one of the statements or, or quotes that, that the guy sharing uh, uh, shared that, that is so stuck with me this past week is, is something like this. He said, Satan's personal hell is every day realizing that no matter what he does or how much destruction he causes, that ultimately he is being used by God. And that in the end, everything will turn out for good. In other words, Satan's hell is realizing freshly every day that he is nothing but a pawn in the hand of God. And that's why Paul could say in verse 24 that he rejoiced in his sufferings. You see, Paul understood this well, that, that no matter what was going on in his life, that God was over it, that he was above it, and that ultimately he was in control, uh, even when uh, what was coming at him was a re the result of some evil forces. In fact, in Colossians 2.15, Paul writes this. He says, speaking of Jesus, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In other words, Paul is saying, look, you and I, we can take courage in this life because Christ has already won. But not only that, look at verse 17. It says this, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus Christ not only created everything, but he is currently, actively, and continually sustaining his creation, which includes you. You see, some agnostics, and, and certainly those who are deists, would, would have you believe that God created the earth, and then he just let it go. He, he took his hands off of it and let it spin out into chaos. But yet, according to this verse, we're told that Jesus is intimately involved in sustaining his creation. He has not walked away. He has not left us on our own. And then in verse 18, we learn that Christ is the, the head of the body, the church. We're told that he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And so that right there should give us courage to face our own deaths because if Christ himself has tasted death, if he has passed through it, if he has defeated it, then you and I, if, if we know him, if we're in relationship with him, then, we, then our experience will be the same. You see, if we know Christ, then we will, uh, death will, I, I was thinking about this, that, that song that we sing, um, Beautiful, 
And it says, when, when we arrive on eternity's shores, when death is just a memory and tears are no more. I, I love that verse because I just think, you know, a uh, uh, hundred years from now or a thousand years from now or, or 20 million years from now, uh, we're just going to look back and we're going to, death's just going to be this little distant memory. Just be like, you know, remember that time that I died? Oh, that was, that was funny, you know. <laughs> it's like I was just going and, then, you know, boom, there I was and I died. And um, Well, maybe not, but, but I, I was thinking about this. Um, Last week, uh, my family, we had the opportunity to go to this hotel, and, and, and attached to the hotel was a water park. And, you know, that was really exciting for our kids because it's January, and everyone's miserable, and you can't go outside, and you certainly can't swim and, unless you're inside. And, and uh, so we're swimming, and we're having a good time. And, and at, the, uh, at the water park, there was this big red slide that went down in circles and then dumped into this pool. And so I'm looking at it, and, and we're swimming, and I look at my three-year-old daughter, and I say, hey, let's, let's go down that slide. And she was like, hmm, no way, you know. I was like, no, Dad. And, and, and you know, normally I would push it and shame her and, until she eventually uh, had to go down it, or I would just force her. But, uh, you know, I was, at this, I was at this prayer seminar, and I realized how much uh, us as parents, how we wound our kids and how it screws them up later. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going gonna to let it go. Uh, well, a little bit later, I, I go down the slide, and, and so she watches me do that. And, and uh, so we're swimming, and she says, Dad, I, I want to go down the slide with you. And, and I realized she wanted to go down the slide because, number one, she saw that I went down, and I made it, and I was okay. But, but she also wanted to go down because she knew that I would be going down with her. And so we climb up the steps, and we get to the top of the slide, and, and she sits on my lap, and, and we go down this slide. And it was awesome. She loved it. And, and we even got out and she's like, I want to do it again. And, you know, so, it was, you know, we do it like five or six times. And, and um, you know, I, I'm not trying to be uh, insensitive or, or cavalier. I don't even know if that's the right word. But um, I'm not saying that death is going to be awesome or that we're going to say, hey, I want to do that again. You know, let's do it again, Lord. Um, but what I am saying is that because Christ has died, because he has rose, you and I, we can have courage to face death because he has already done it. He has gone through it. And because we are in him, we will, uh, he'll go through it with us. You see, I don't remember there being a qualifier when Jesus told us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so that right there, that should give us courage to face our own death because Christ has defeated it. He's come out on the other side and he's going with it through, uh, he's going with us through it. Let's move on to that last point, confidence. How knowing the real Jesus brings us confidence. Look at verses 19 through 23. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you and I, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which I, Paul, or which, I, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so the first thing that should give us confidence is the fact that because Jesus is God, because he is preeminent and supreme, you and I, we can rest assured that he was able to reconcile us back to the Father. 
I mean, how would you guys feel if I stood up here, you know, and the first thing is I came out and I said, you know what, guys, I was thinking about it this week, and I want to buy every single one of you a brand new car. How many of you would get really excited by hearing me say that? Well, why not? Is it perhaps because you know that I, I don't have the capital or the resources to accomplish what I've promised? Well, you would be wrong because I work at a church, and so of course I can afford to buy all of you a car. All right, well, what if instead of me, Bill Gates walked out that door and he came out and he said, Limworth, I was just in the area and I, I saw this church and I was like, you know, I'm just going to stop in and, and I'm going to buy every single one of you a brand new car. Now, how many of you would be excited by that? Would anybody? Well, I would be because I know uh, that Bill Gates is very generous and that he has the capital and the resources to accomplish what he said uh, he would do. And in the same way, Jesus because of who he is, because of the life that he lived, because of the death that he died, and because of the grave that he overcame, he has the resources, he has the capital, he has the ability to pull off forgiving our sins and reconciling us back to God. And that, my friends, should give you so much joy, it should give you so much hope, and it should give you confidence and assurance in your salvation. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, yeah, that, that all sounds really good. Well, what about verse 23? There was a, there was a big if there. Well, a couple of things. The, this passage makes it very clear that the reconciliation, that that is Jesus' work and not ours. Uh, verse 21 and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And notice there in that passage, the word reconciled is in the past tense, not future tense. As well, verse 23, it does sound conditional because it says, if you continue. But notice what the condition is. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So this verse is conditional, but it's not conditional based on our good works, but rather its condition is faith and faith alone. In fact, as I, I dug into this, because as I was going along, it was like, oh man, this is good. And then I saw if, and I was like, ooh, wait, there's a condition. But as I, I dug into this passage, uh, you know, scholars have, have said because of the way that, that the, the, uh, it's constructed in the Greek, that the little phrase, if indeed you continue... Because of the way that it's constructed, that they, they, they know that it's not an expression of doubt. In, in other words, Paul fully expects that the, the Colossian believers will continue on in faith. In fact, one commentator went so far as to paraphrase that statement as this. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I am sure that you will. And so again, that, don't take that statement as, a, as an expression of doubt. And really, we know as we dig into some of Paul's other writings that his confidence isn't so much in Christians and their ability to hang on in faith, but actually his confidence is in God and God's ability to help you persevere in faith. That's why one of my favorite verses is Colossians 1.6, which says this. I'm sorry, Philippians 1.6, which says this. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, his confidence is in the one who began the good work, not in the one in whom the good work has been begun. 
But not only that, let's jump back into our Colossians passage. There's one more verse I want to look at this morning, and that's verse 27. At the end of verse 27, it says this. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in the context there, Paul is playing off of their false teaching language. He, he's in a sense saying, oh, oh, you, you want to know what the mystery is? Oh, you want me to give you some hidden secret knowledge? Well, it's this. Number one, the Gentiles are in on this deal, too. But not only that, the mystery is this, that Jesus lives in you. In fact, the NLT translates this, this part of the verse this way. It says this, and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. You see, brothers and sisters, when we truly know the real Jesus, we can have confidence that we have been reconciled to God because, again, Jesus has the capital to actually accomplish that. But not only that, he, through the Holy Spirit, uh, now lives in us. And so we can be confident that he will accomplish that which he has begun in us. And so what does all of this mean for us today? Well, it means this. If you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, if we have embraced him, then we can live lives that are fully alive. You see, we can be fully alive because we can get clarity on who God is by simply looking at Jesus. We can get clarity on who we are and and what our purpose is because we were created by him and we were created for him. We can live lives that are fully alive because we can have courage to face life regardless of what's going on and regardless of who is opposing us. And we can live lives that are fully alive because we can face death with courage because Jesus has been there. He has done that. He has defeated it. And just like how I went down the slide with my daughter, he's coming with us through it. And finally, we can live lives that are fully alive because you and I, we can have the confidence that Jesus has the capital, that he has the resources to buy us back, to reconcile us to God. And not only that, we can have confidence that we are going to hang on in faith until the end because by the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in us. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling with any of those areas, if you're struggling with clarity with courage or with confidence, then I want to urge you to look to Jesus, to set your hope and your sights on him. And I am sure that if you do, he will not let you down, that he will give you all that you need to live a life that is fully alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. God, thank you for these beautiful, poetic words that, that, that give us a glimpse of who Christ is, of all that, all that he has done and all uh, that he will do in the future, Lord. We're just so thankful that, that in Christ we get to live lives that are fully alive, that we get to live lives that are, are free from fear, that we get to live lives that, uh, of clarity, we get to live lives that are full of courage and confidence. And so, Lord, I just pray for my friends here, God, that you would fill them with what they need to continue to live lives that are pleasing to you, to live lives that are fully alive. And we pray all of this in your beautiful son's name.
Amen.